You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It's the grapevine and uh, the Victorian government's formal apology for laws that criminalise homosexuality was an historic moment, not just in Victoria, but across the world. And it focused attention here on discriminatory laws and also bigotry in Australia when it comes to LGBTI communities. And um, it also, though, showed that social progress has happened and uh, especially compared to the mid to late 20th century when these laws were in place. And a new book um, has not doesn't look particularly at those laws but the context in which um, a lot of gay and lesbian men and women grew up and came of age in Australia and a new book called Gay and Lesbian Then and Now, Australian Stories from a Social Revolution provides personal stories and uh, and from from the 50s really right through to today and Shirlene Robinson is one of the authors and it's really great to have you with us Shirlene and as I was just mentioning I think a lot of us um, in the past couple of weeks have really been thinking going gee, what, you know, what was it like um, being gay in Australia in the 50s and you um, have spoken to a lot of people in preparation for this book. Maybe you can kind of tell us about the project that led to it. Yeah, sure. So um, it was a really amazing opportunity. We worked with the National Library of Australia and we uh, basically travelled all across Australia, really from um, every state and territory. So we went from, you know, Sydney all the way up to Darwin and then across to the bottom of Western Australia and Tasmania and we uh, spoke to 60 people all up. So um, uh, all, all across about five different generations. I think our oldest person was um, sort of in their early 90s and our youngest was uh, in their early 20s and we just tried to ask them you know what their life had been like to get an idea of maybe you know how things had changed or if they had changed for gay and lesbian people really over the last 60 years. And, and the idea was not to talk to particularly you know big names or activists per se just regular ordinary um, people living across Australia. That's right. So, you know, people who might have um, had some sort of involvement with the gay or lesbian movement at some at some stage, but generally people who were, you know, living, um, I guess, what we might consider to be fairly ordinary lives, um, just sort of everyday lives about work and family and all that sort of thing. And, and the book's written as an oral history, so you've kind of recounted the stories of uh, 13 out of, out of the 60 people that you interviewed. Um, I wonder about uh, sort of how you decided to write the book in that way, because you could tell the story of uh, the history of, um, I suppose, gay and lesbian people in Australia in a range of different ways from an institutional perspective or a political perspective. What can we gain out of looking at uh, this in terms of an oral history? Um, I think that what you say is uh, it is really very sensible. So, and, and, and some of those political and institutional uh, histories have been written by really wonderful historians like Graham Willett, who actually worked um, on this project with us. But um, I guess what we wanted to do was to have a look at the way that broader social change was experienced in people's intimate lives. So um, we're hoping that the 13 people that we've chosen, that their lives in some ways have been selected because they do embody, I guess, some of the things that lesbian and gay people have gone through uh, in Australia over the past sort of six decades. And I suppose before we go to some of the stories, um, you, you've divided the book up into um, three main distinct areas. And I, I wonder if you can kind of put in a nutshell the, the different experiences that you, um, you that sort of tell us about what life was like coming of age in the middle of last century, towards the end of last century, and then early um, in the 21st century, what, what the kind of general experiences were like for people. 
Um, okay, so I, we opened the book with, with uh, to a couple of people that we refer to as our veterans. And, um, you know, these are people who were sort of born uh, at a time when, um, for gay men, um, your behaviour was criminalised. So... Um, you, it was something that you did have to keep, um, I guess, quite secret from a lot of society. Uh, and if you're a woman, the chances were that you were not going to hear very much about being a lesbian at all. Um, so you had to really struggle for visibility um, and were subjected to a lot of different pressures. Um, the next section talks about a group that we call Baby Boomers and Generation X. And in that sort of era, that's when you do start to see a lot of change happen for uh, lesbian and gay people. Um, you know, the rise of the women's movement, the HIV-AIDS crisis, um, uh, I guess the, the rise of lesbianism in popular culture. You have shows like Ellen suddenly making uh, lesbianism much more visible than it's ever been before. Um, so that, that group, the second group, capture a lot of that change and our final group we've called the millennials and those are people who are quite young today so people who are in their 20s who are and and i guess early 30s who inhabit i guess a remarkably different world in a lot of ways to our veterans in that um perhaps there are more freedoms available to them than there have ever been for gay and lesbian people in australia and the first story you tell in the book and, uh, is, is that of a man called Merv and, and he's uh, recounting his experiences in, in the post-war years. He kind of fits uh, the, the description of, of a veteran in the way that you've uh, kind of broken the book up. Tell us a little bit about him and, and the sorts of uh, experiences he had in those post-war years in Brisbane. Well, I mean, Merv's story is really fascinating and um, he's, he's such a wonderful um, interviewee because he, there's such a, a richness to, to the information that he provides. So he, he grew up and actually has memories of, um, you know, the American soldiers being in Brisbane. Uh, and then he sort of, he, he sort of discovers, I guess, and explores his sexuality through beats. So he's able to describe, I think, in great detail this um, sort of hidden beat culture that was a big part of his life. And um, the interesting thing about Merv is that he's sort of moved, I guess, from from beats to the internet quite seamlessly. And even though he's, you know, in his 80s now, he, he's still, sex is still a part of his life and um, he's still able to, to use the internet to, uh, to make that happen. So that's, um, you know, just shows, I guess, the mobility and diversity of people in a lot of ways. And also, I mean, you, you use the word hidden there, and I think that's something that I really um, uh, learnt from from this um, social history is that while it, um, there was a lot of people's intimate lives, as you put it, um, hidden from from kind of mainstream Australia, there was a very strong community of people that um, met in different places and had a very strong social bond there, and and that that has changed. That we've got neighbourhoods in Sydney and Melbourne that are really changing now because people don't have to be anymore. Yes, this is true and this is, a, I guess, a really interesting topic that's talked about a lot by the uh, LGBTIQ community, which is that, you know, people will have this, um, this memory, I guess, of uh, parts of Sydney, particularly maybe Oxford Street or, um, you know, the Commercial Road area in Melbourne that, um, you know, very vibrant and, and visibly gay areas, but that, that does seem to be receding a little bit. And um, is that because... Uh, people are finding community in other ways, possibly online, or is it that it's, um, you know, it's more accepted to be gay or lesbian so you don't have to sort of be in these spaces anymore? So there's a lot happening, I think, that some of those uh, younger people's lives particularly capture that sense of change.
Yeah, we're speaking with Shailene Robinson. She's co-author of a new book called Gay and Lesbian Then and Now. And, I, and there's one quote that you use for the kind of era that we're in now, um, Shailene, which is, um, quote, the gay world is looking straighter every day, or is it the straight world a little bit more bent? And I think perhaps um, that you write that there's all, some people in the, in the book have said that there's a bit of regret there that that distinctive community is kind of, um, yeah, not so visible, not, not, not there in the way that it was before. Yes, and I think that that is really interesting. So, um, you know, for a lot of younger people, there's, a, I guess, you know, people like Merv and Nola, the other person that we, who's in our veterans section, it really wasn't possible, I suppose, to, to live an ordinary life in many ways whilst being openly gay or lesbian. But for our younger people, that is something that is increasingly possible, you know, particularly people who live in places like Sydney or Melbourne. And um, part of that has seen, I guess, a bit of a shift towards a lot of people perhaps not being... Um, as involved with um, community activism as previous generations. And, yeah, I guess some of the, um, the elements of gay and lesbian culture that we celebrate, um, the, you know, transgression, the creativity, um, the sense of difference, um, there is this sort of feeling that comes through, even from some of our younger people, um, that maybe we've lost something here, something that is quite remarkable, and, and do we have to be concerned about perhaps the loss of this wonderful sort of rich culture. And, and the book ends with um, a really sort of interesting counterpoint, I suppose, to Merv's story with uh, the story of someone called Alex who lives in kind of the Thornbury-Preston um, area of Melbourne and really lives uh, essentially what we'd consider to be a very normal life. She hasn't kind of uh, had to go through the same uh, secretive kind of undercover sorts of activities, I guess, as Merv did um, in the 1950s and 60s. And she finishes in her chapter or you quote her by saying that the world today is a lot more positive than perhaps people make out and the subtitle to your book is uh, Australian stories from a social revolution and I wonder what is it that, that's led to that broad attitudinal social change um, you know in terms of where we are now from where we've come over the past 20 30 40 years. Well, I think for, I really do want to give credit to, um, you know, a lot of the, the activism that has resulted in uh, improved conditions for lesbian and gay people in Australia and the broader LGBTIQ community um, because, you know, that took a lot of... Um, a lot of effort and a lot of energy to sort of lobby for positive change. I mean, law reform in terms of things like, you know, men being criminalised for their behaviour. So certainly there's that activism that drove it. But we also think that um, a lot of the change that has happened perhaps has been driven by a more personal contact. So when people um, know gay or lesbian people um, and they have those conversations with them, then I think that has the potential to change attitudes. And obviously internationally as well, um, you know, across the Western world and particularly in places like the United States or um, the UK, Australia's quite influenced by developments there. So as law reform has happened and as sort of gay and lesbian people have become more visible, I think that society has realised that, um, you know, all that people want is the right to be able to live their lives in the way that they choose and that's not really asking for anything that's... Um, too, too, too difficult or, or too hard, really. And I think sometimes looking back over that progress, it can seem as if uh, becoming more progressive is, is almost inevitable, that we're leading towards a more progressive society. But from time to time, things um, come up, such as the, the furor over safe schools, for example, um, and in, in a range of different areas. Do you think there is a certain inevitability about broader social change, or do we still sort of need to be very mindful of the fact that that, that isn't, in fact, inevitable? And that we need to keep sort of advocating, um, you know, for a more open and accepting society. 
I'm actually really glad that you said that because I think it's an excellent point and I definitely agree that we do need to be vigilant so sometimes you can be you know a little bit laid back and think oh you know everything is going to develop in this really positive direction but you know there's always room for pushback and prejudice can always rear its head and I guess if there's one thing that historians know it's that it really is quite impossible to predict where the future is going so you know it, it certainly looks more optimistic now but that's only because I think people have pushed this and um, we've worked towards that sort of outcome where people can increasingly live lives that are more open and are more accepted um, but yes I'd certainly share your um, your point that we need to continue to be vigilant about that. And it's interesting too because we um, are likely, I'm not sure um, what, what the future holds to have a, a plebiscite around um, marriage equality and I wonder if um, these kinds of things um, you know, what, what change do you think we're likely to see um, looking into the future based on, based on the project that you've just been running, Shirlene? Well, um, you know, in terms of the question of a, of a plebiscite, I, I personally, um, it's maybe a little bit, a little bit off, off topic of my of the, of the book, but I personally uh, don't support it in the sense that I don't think it should go to a vote. I think that it should be done through Parliament. Um, what, from what people have told us in the book, I think that there's a lot more acceptance for, um, you know, uh, marriage equality and things like that. Um, so uh, I guess that, you know, I. I I ultimately think that if Australia did move towards marriage equality, then that would send a very positive message to generations of and future generations of gay and lesbian people that their relationships are no less and that their love is equal. And I think that would be a really remarkable and, and um, just thing to happen in this country. Thanks so much for being with us on Trafala today. Uh, thank you. It's Shirlene Robinson. Uh, she's co-author of a book. It's called Gay and Lesbian Then and Now, Australian Stories from a Social Revolution. It's out through Black Ink and um, it's a really readable um, social history, oral history and uh, going back to um, really multiple generations and the experience of gay and lesbian people in Australia. And you might have seen the first episode of Revolution School on ABC telly. It uh, screamed last uh, Tuesday night. It's on again tomorrow night and it documents the experiences of one school, Cambria College in Berwick, as it tries to change its culture and shift from being one of the lowest performing schools in the state um, to one of the more higher performing school. And to bring about the change, the school is working with experts from the Graduate School of Education at Melbourne Uni and Professor Field Rickards is Dean of Education there. And it's really great to have you um, on Triple R field and I wonder um, how the uni got involved with a, an ABC TV documentary series. Uh, that's an interesting question, Carly. I, um, in fact, CJZ, the production company, came to us about 18 months ago and they were interested in the sorts of work we were doing at the graduate school and in particular the way we were uh, reforming the preparation of teachers. And so they put in a bid to the ABC and so we became partners then and so during uh, 2015, the, the school was uh, had a number of fixed cameras and mobile cameras, and they, they they tracked the process of it. So it was really that was the initial that was the initial approach for them to us, and they were interested in schools that we were working with, and so we work with a number of schools in different ways through our Master of Teaching, and we work with them through through some networks of schools to improve school performance. So Cambria was the school that was uh, selected because it had been on this eight-year trajectory. 
and we've been involved with them for about five years, so we're going to need to take, uh, well, well, I give full credit to the school with a bit of guidance from us, but, uh, you know, bottom 10% eight years ago to top 25% now and still growing. And so in terms of the, the program that's been underway at Cambria, in what sense is it revolutionary? Because the, the title of the ABC doco, of course, is Revolution School. What are they doing there that's different to common practices at, at high schools across the state and the country more broadly? Uh, well, I think that... Okay, so where do we start? First of all, they they, they recognised that they needed to do something. They recognised uh, that every student has a potential and they want to maximise the potential of every student. They recognise that there are some proven ways of delivering education, of setting goals for every student and for the student to know when they've reached the goals and recognising that every student's different uh, and that they all travel in, on different trajectories. You know, in the first episode, if you saw it, was um, Grace Wong, one of our graduates, is teaching Year 8 Maths and uh, the, the students' abilities in that one class vary from Year 3 to Year 9. This is the actual challenge and complexity of all schools but what comes with it is leadership uh, the, the principal is is uh, absolutely leading from the front in terms of enhancing learning uh, teachers are working collaborative teams I've always said that teaching is the most complex and challenging profession there is and it's probably too complex for any one person and yet for decades as, as long as education has evolved after the uh, I suppose the industrial revolution it was every every teacher one teacher one class 30 students all learning the same things uh, life isn't like that now you know it's, uh, I think you mentioned in the introduction that Australia has been tracking backwards and and it has for the last 12 to 15 years but what's interesting it's our most able students that are dropping backwards most relative to other OECD countries and isn't that interesting because I think um, you know John Patty, um, you know, renowned um, um, professor with, with your school, but also renowned around the world for his work, um, he says quite clearly in the doco that class size and private public school, whether your student, your, your child goes to, you know, a, a large class or a private school or a public school, and whether you've got that sort of ability to choose, those things don't make as much difference as student outcome as the quality of the teaching. And I think this is um, a very strong... Um, kind of message coming through from from the first episode anyway of, of revolution school uh, and that message continues and becomes stronger but i i think the i think in australia they've measured the variance of students abilities what you know what what are the reasons why students vary so much across the country and more than 80 percent of that variance can be attributed to what happens inside the classroom so that means then, well, if 80% of it's coming from inside the classroom, why does school choice matter? And that 80% applies to every classroom. You know, there's ver there are things called normal distributions. We vary in a whole lot of attributes across our populations, including our ability, not just our ability to learn, but but where we've come from as, as growing people, from when we come into the world, we all have different learning experiences and somehow we homogenise a lot and assume that everybody will grow at the same rate. And, and, and so I think one of the features of Cambria is that they follow the same underlying philosophy that drives everything we do here. Uh, they believe in, in, in growth, that every student should be able to grow a year in every calendar year in terms of their learning. 
that we've, we've introduced this concept in the graduate school called clinical thinking, and they align with that. And it goes, the, the underlying thinking goes something like this. What, what does each student know now? What, does each, what is each student ready to learn next? And what are the evidence-based interventions? What are the known things that impact on student learning? And how do you deliver that in terms of a teaching strategy? But most importantly, how do I know that I've had impact on student learning? And just as importantly, how does the student know that they've learnt what it is that they're going to learn? And Hattie, you mentioned John Hattie, who's our Director of Research. He wrote a book called Visible Learning. What is there that shows you that the child has actually learnt things? Because often we, I think a lot of things are often inferred in class as we talk about... Uh, I think you're right, and I think this idea of, you know, pedagogy, a lot of people, you know, kind of go, oh, what is pedagogy and whatever, but the teachers at, at Cambrai are bringing the students along with them, saying this is what our goals are for you, these are the goals today, and the students are starting to kind of take on some of this self-assessment language, and are I, am I achieving the goals, and what is the task I need to, to master today, and have I mastered it, and this idea that bringing students in to this kind of mythical world of, of or, you know, mysterious word of um, of pedagogy is working. How is that working better than than kind of just taking students on a on a on a journey without them really kind of knowing exactly where you're taking them? Uh, I just I, I think. Uh that when students recognise what it is they have to learn and then they can monitor their own progress and, and they can ask the right questions, this is critical stuff because teaching for so long has been delivery of a curriculum. And, you know, we've had previous governments here in Victoria that don't think teachers work enough hours or have enough face-to-face teaching. But does that mean just deliver more information to students? Students don't... They have access to information on a thing called internet, it's, it, which can be very superficial in terms of knowledge, but it's how do, how do teachers really create deep learning and deep understanding of the subject that's being taught? And then once they've learned how to learn, then they can get more information. So it's, it, I'll go back to two words I used at the very start. This is the most complex and challenging profession that I can imagine. And I think the impact, or sorry, the, the, the feedback I've had since the first episode has been a deep appreciation of that. And I was um, giving a talk to a number of principals on um, on Friday morning and one stood up and said, look, I was looking at this rather intense discussion between a mother and her student in the car park on the Wednesday night, the day after, and he was a bit concerned. He went out and said, what was the discussion? He said, we were discussing last night's Revolution School. <laughs> I deeply understand the challenge you have and I respect you for that. And, uh, I mean, the, the evidence is there for, for Canberra. I understand it's gone from uh, having the bottom 10, uh, being in the bottom 10% of VCE results in the state to the top 20, 25% in the course of this program being instituted. That shows that rapid improvement is really achievable, even at these, uh, you know, previously um, low-achieving schools. Do you see much buy-in from, from governments and, and others when that evidence is very clearly available and very clearly kind of out there showing that these kind of implementations and interventions really work? I think that's the biggest challenge is, is uh, for politicians and policymakers to deeply understand the challenge. And this was an eight, this is an eight-year trajectory so far. 
and uh, you know it took countries like Singapore and South Korea and uh, Finland 40 years to get from the bottom to the top but but that was because they had no other resources we're much further down the track but there's excellence everywhere but it's how do schools work collaboratively to help each other how do teachers work collaboratively I go back to the complexity and the challenge uh, do, uh, and to be honest that was one of the reasons why I said to CJZ we want to be part of this because we want to change the views of the public about how complex and challenging education is and when we do appreciate that then we're likely to get some true investment uh, the right sort of investment in education. Um, Professor Field Ricards is with us. We're talking about Revolution School and uh, a documentary on ABC TV that um, the Graduate School of Education at Melbourne Uni um, was involved with and Professor um, Ricards is at Melbourne University and I wonder um, about this uh, like Cambria has has your school and, and um, Melbourne University involved in this kind of longer like eight year long program to improve the results there. How do we roll this out and scale it up uh, field because I think that is our great challenge isn't it to try and shift a whole workforce and shift the way that schools not just work it at that one location but across the state how how do we do that I think it can be scaled up. I mentioned the word networks. Canberra is part of a network of 20 schools that work with each other to improve uh, their own learning. And Canberra is also one of our uh, key schools in our Master of Teaching program. I think these are two models that are showing a change. First of all, uh, a change in the way schools can work collaboratively, but secondly, uh, in the way we develop teachers and and the lifting of the entire teaching profession. So the, que- the question you're asking is how do we scale it up? Well, it requires, first of all, recognition that these are appropriate uh, directions to take and then investing in it. These these were not um, insignificant costs in terms of, or investments to cause the, to these changes, and it's investments by the school and, in, and indeed investments by the graduate school. What we're trying to do is to demonstrate that things can change uh, and in time we hope that, uh, that the that ministers and bureaucrats and others will recognise there are ways of doing things. We keep hearing about the Gonski money, absolutely right, but I've often said it's, it's how the money gets spent and I think these sorts of examples, and Canberra is just one of many schools that we're working is, with, can be scaled up not just within within Victoria but but nationally as well and I mean to keep the focus on teachers what about the the teaching um, profession and the sort of the, the broader workforce there field like what what is you know we, we saw um, Grace Wong you mentioned who um, I actually loved her in the doco so far that um, one of her students um, in response to her YouTube um, mathematics um, lessons said that she should have her own YouTube channel and he would subscribe which I thought was fantastic but what about teachers that aren't tech savvy and and maybe need to do a lot of um, reskilling, I suppose, in the way, and or change in the way that they're running classrooms. How how are we going there? Well, you're right, and, and but but Grace got her lead one from her preparation, but two from other teachers at the school. And this is where schools can work as networks, and, and schools can learn from each other. This is, I'd say, it's a ten to fifteen year journey if we start investing in it now. But it, the, these, it's I, I don't think these are difficult things to do, and we've all learned how to use the internet and emails and so on. Uh, even those who aren't tech savvy, so. It's, but it's not something that will happen overnight, as Canberra has illustrated, within its first eight years of its trajectory. So 
But you're right. I mean, we have to look at two levels. We have to look at the initial preparation of teachers and we have to look at the in-service preparation of teachers and indeed the development of leaders. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing called education management which focuses on finance and other things, but there's another element of leadership that's called instructional leadership and how do the leaders take on that leadership in the whole area of instruction. And fundamentally, that's what schools are about. It's about student learning. And uh, the, the episode I've seen so far of the documentary, something I, I really uh, liked was seeing the, the teachers gain direct feedback from education specialists and, and sort of being really open to that and adapting their practices after receiving that feedback. Um, and, and in your work at the Melbourne uh, Graduate School of Education, ha- have you seen that there is that real willingness to collaborate and kind of shake up practices to achieve better outcomes? Definitely. I mean, I think the overwhelming majority of teachers are in the teaching profession for the right reason. They want to change the lives of young people. But you'll find it's even a little bit more confronting in episode two when when an outside expert comes in and says we can actually improve the way we teach literacy. And that is confronting when you believe you're doing it the right way. But if you've got an open mind knowing that you can learn... Uh, as a professional, then uh, you do. And I think we all do as professionals. And I think that that's part of the mark of a profession. And, and, and it, comes, it comes back to respect for the teaching profession. I'm not sure that it's always had that respect. And I get a feeling after one week of Revolution School that uh, some of that uh, respect, will, by the time we get to the end of four episodes, there'll be a much higher degree of respect for teachers uh, and their work. And indeed, if I can tell just one other anecdote, and that is a colleague of mine contacted me on Tuesday night and he said my 20-year-old son had watched the show in Adelaide and he said, quote, if law doesn't work out for me, I know what I'll do next. <laughs> well, I wonder then, I mean, just going to this idea of people starting out, the, the, um, the entry ATARs for, for um, teachers going into universities is, has been... Uh, a, sort of looked at in detail and people are worried about the um, the ATAR score that, that allows um, people to go into teaching. And I wonder, is that something that is an issue from where you sit, um, Phil, that we need to raise things like ATARs to get um, better teachers or do you have a different view? Oh, no, I totally agree with that. In fact, I was on Minister Pine's Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group in 2014 and it was a clear recommendation that the people coming into teaching one needed the personal qualities to be uh, a teacher and be able to work with young people but, but secondly they need the intellectual capabilities as well this is you know it's 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 demanding and uh, it's very demanding and i think that or i actually think all teacher education should be at the graduate level so that we're dealing with people who one have developed analytic thinking in their first degree uh they come in knowing that's what they want to do and they have a level of maturity i mean there's a as an example, our Master of Teaching program, the average age of intake is 27 years. That's a fair bit of maturity at 27. Not only have they done at least one university degree, but they've done a lot of other things as well, on average. And and so, and, and they thrive once they get into the school. But as a 16 or 17-year-old school leaver with an ATAR, not, you know, somewhere less than, I'll, I'll say, 80, and you're dealing with some really smart kids as well as some really challenging kids. I, I, I think that's unrealistic. And it really comes back to whether we think teaching's a craft where we just deliver a curriculum or a true profession where we're, if you like, diagnosing where each student is now on their learning trajectory and being able to intervene and being able to evaluate the impact that, each, that we're having on each student's learning. We have to believe that... 
we have to believe that every student can learn that we can get a year's growth in every calendar year. Uh, but it, it ultimately it comes down to the effectiveness of the teacher. And some teachers are more effective than others. Some lawyers are more effective than others. Some doctors are more effective. Well, part of the effectiveness of a teacher is controlling a classroom, isn't it? And this is something that in um, Revolution School is very stark, that you know, earlier in our conversation you said that 80% of the, the kind of, um, of um, a student's outcome comes down to what's happening in the classroom. And if a classroom is very disruptive uh, and makes learning difficult, then there, there's a challenge right there. And I wonder how big a part of teaching is controlling that classroom, particularly at the high school level. Uh, well, I can't answer that directly other than if the students are engaged in their learning, I suspect they'll be less disruptive, but there are strategies. But, uh, but there's, there's some very uh, um, confronting statistics that came out of New South Wales last year where 25% of students in Year 7 did not feel engaged with education, became 45% in Year 9. Well, if you're not engaged... It's very difficult then to be focused on learning within the classroom and you can understand, I mean this is an interesting time for young people between you know the ages of 12 and 17. Yeah we've all been there. But, well and it kind of goes to the, the breadth of skills that teachers are required to have as well that they're not just there to, to impart information but we see in, in episode one the complex um, social family issues that teachers are required to engage with on a you know a daily basis with students who might seem um, you know disruptive and, and just delinquent at first, but actually are dealing with, with a lot of complex issues. Indeed, and it just shows the partnership that needs to exist between the, between the school and the family. Um, you know, the, support, the supportive families will make life a lot, a lot easier for the student, but you, it, it, there's some more confronting uh, pieces coming. Mm. <laughs> well, um, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, ABC Telly, if you haven't seen the first one, you can catch up with On, on Demand t- um, TV. And thanks so much for being with us today, um, Field. It's been really great to, um, to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me. I think it's, a, it's a really, uh, really interesting that you're showing so much interest. Um, Professor Field Ricards, he's Dean of Education um, at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. And uh, his um, team was involved with Revolution School, a doco series that you can catch on the ABC. Dave Arden here in the studio with us. I'm sure he needs no introduction to Triple R audiences, but he's a highly accomplished Gundich Mara Kokatha singer-songwriter. He's performed as Archie Roach's lead guitarist for many years, appearing alongside the late, great Ruby Hunter and many others, including Titus Butt, Willoughby, Mixed Relations, Kutcher Edwards, Shane Howard and many more. He was also the founder and co-musical director of the Black Arm Band and very happy to have him in the studio today. Welcome. How you going? Good to have you back in Triple R, Dave. Yeah, but great to be back, eh? And um, that track we just heard, Freedom Called, which you put out a, a little while ago but um, appears on, on your brand's new EP. Tell us yep. a bit about that song, the story behind it. Yeah, well, the story of how the song come about, it was, um, you know, when I was living in Abbotsford, Collingwood, and um, I grew up there. My, my um, One of my father's sisters um, used to call herself a copper's daughter, and I always going, okay been a young lout there getting in trouble with the coppers all the time and going what does she mean and then i found out later that um what she meant was he, he was a military police from the days of living up in um haywood lake conda haywood and um and he, he enlisted to go you know to join up the army and um and and because of illness he had to you know when they come in off the ships, you know, he would, they, you know, set him up to be a military police, you know. 
to look after the African Americans, so Aboriginals and African Americans looking after each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's about the songs about also about uh, fighting Gundijmaras, who are pretty much all all the people you know from my great grandfather's journey, which is James Arden and. Um, and my great grand uncle Reginald Rawlings, my grandmother's sister, uh, brother, and um, my uncle Captain Reg Saunders, which is one of the famous name, the first Aboriginal listed officer, you know, in this country. You know? So, do, do, have you done your own um, research into your family background, Dave, or is this the, these stories that you've? grown up with yeah it's the stories i grew up you see with with that one i didn't do much research it was when i read it or wrote it and when i started singing it all these people started coming up to me mm. and telling me all the all their stories you know whether it be you know their personal stories or their parents or that but then i started you know i opened up a pandora's box of learning more about the last lady was to the aboriginal affairs is just did a you know just did you know a lot of history you know, work on the James Arden and who he was about and what he had to endure and the trials and tribulations, you mm. know, of living on the mission and, you know, you know, and his, his father would have been the traditional, you know, non-speaking English Aboriginal man from Gundijmara country, you know. And then it was him and then they had to go into these um, missionary camps for the because of the assimilation policy, you know, and be carted like cattle, you know. You know, and um, he left the mission to join up with the army to, you know, to fight for freedom. Don't forget that thing, you know, fight for freedom. Um, and, and but also to be their own men, you know, to be treated like an equal, you know, in a monster, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. we've constructed such a mythology around war in mainstream Australia with things like Anzac Day and Remembrance mm. Day, which is purported to be kind of the birth of the nation, the, mm. the time that Australia announced itself as, yeah. I guess, its its own country, its own sovereign country. But, of course, the story that hasn't been told as widely as it, as it should have been was the role of Aboriginal soldiers in yeah. in those wars. Yeah. Um, and, and as you mentioned, they'd often come back to Australia and encounter the you know, rampant prejudice and, yeah. and racism that was very yeah. much part of this nation's history. Yeah, and that, they're the stories that started coming out, you know. You know, they're the emotional or happy or sad stories, you know. Comrade stories, you know, of, um, you know, and then we talk about reconciliation. They were doing it back then, you know. Yes, it took this great emotional, you know, life-threatening moment, but it bonded people, you mm-hmm. know, you know, to look after each other. And then in a time and place and an era before their time, you know. You know these great human beings. You know, and so how did Paul yeah. Kelly get involved in in well, that song? Uh, well, you know, see, on my my side, there's Scottish and Irish in me. You know, so in the DNA, and uh, and the, which I call my grandparents. You know, and uh, I wanted to pay respects to them, but at the same time, is what you just said. It's them. You know, y- y- your mate. You know, you, 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 the digger next to you, uh, which needed to be in this song, you know. And so I thought, you know, and I've known Paul through Uncle Archie for a good 30 years, you know, and I thought, you know, who's another great, you know, another great storyteller that can help me, you know, take this song. And he's renowned to do that. You know, he's a great Australian storyteller, you know, to bring, you know, you know, issues and, you know, perspective to the forefront, you know. Mm. And I thought, you know, but at the same time, I've been dying to perform. And it was one of the last Black Arm I asked him, you interested to do a song with me? And then, you know, a couple of years later, I 
gave him a call and then he said, send me a demo and he had a listen. He said, yeah, I love it. Let's do it. Great. great. And, yeah. and, I mean, he's a great collaborator, but so are you. Do you really enjoy that collaboration yeah, process? Yeah, I really I really do. I've never done it before, you know, so it was really great, and uh, which is kind of silly, and I'm thinking now, you know, I had two of the greatest songwriters <laughs> that, that Australia <laughs> reckons they're the legendary songwriters is Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach, but I never did nothing for them. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think it's a bucket list. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you've played a lot with them, of course, yeah. ov- over the years. Yeah. Um, and this EP that you've just put out is, is essentially your, your solo project yeah. with the collaboration with Paul Kelly on that particular track. Yeah. yeah. How, how did that come about? Yeah. Well, it, it was, it's pretty much that, you know, it's, a, you know, 34 years playing, you know, doing what I do, you know, um, and learning the craft. And then, and, and, and then, you know, coming from, you know, uh, Collingwood to Thornbury, uh, Avan- Aboriginal Advancement League, doing all the funeral funds, you know, cabarets there, down to Fitzroy Park, you know, on Smith Street, Gert Street, doing all the land right rallies and the deaths and custody rallies when we, when I had my old band called Koori Youth. And that, you know, it's, and then going into Uncle Archie and Aunty Ruby and learning, learning the craft between music, you know, and then learning how to write songs and then learn how to perform and sing, you know. It's just learning all that craft. And I got to the stage now where all them songs that I've written over the last, you know, 20 years, I'm ready to start to do the second project, mm-hmm. you know, which is, you know, the first one was Gugatha Gundich Marikland, which announced me who my two titles are. And this one's here is is a journey about it's a more personal of four generations, you know, mm. you know, going back to my great great grandparents, you know, to write to my family today, you know, and that's that, you know, and that's the EP, which is five songs off it, you know, which leads into the showcase that I'm doing, going to be doing, you know, around the state. And yeah. what's it like um, writing and, and performing these songs uh, in front of your broader family? What's what's the process like when you first show them a song that you've written? Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Because I'm always looking for their reaction from it. You know, I'm, you know, have I gone down the right track? Am I, you know, um, you know, does it sound good to you, darling? You know, well, especially my my wife. Mm. My wife gets it all. You know, but to change the, you know. You know, to play it in front of my brothers and sisters. The chance to play it in, my, in front of my elders. You know, you know, chance, chance to play it in front of people and watch their reaction. Where they're going to, you know, whether they're crying or they're happy or you know, just stories that comes back from them going. See, I, I see a little bit of ourselves. You, know, you remind me of that song. You know, close my eyes, which is the title track on the album. I remember being in Bandsdale and I did it. Did the, did the song first time I read it at an Archie Roach song at an uh, Archie, Archie Roach concert, and a young gentleman come up there, an Aboriginal gentleman, goes, "I love you know," and started crying and goes, "That song, I lost my brother, and you just reminded me of my brother." Mm. That song talks about my brother, and it just blew me out, you know. Yeah. When I talk to you a little bit about the Black Armband, because you were sort of there from the start, um, helped to, to co-found it, and it's really, um, there's been so many amazing projects to, to come out of that, um, and you've since kind of stepped away, but, but tell us about how that all came about and your involvement. Um, well, I remember going there with Kudja, Kudja Edwards, and um, I didn't know nothing about it, and then I ended up rocking up there with Kudja. And then, and then it started, you know, to evolve, you know. And then, um, and so I was, and then I become an artist. And then, uh, and then, because I knew everyone there, and I, and I had with all these artists, there were my relations, or I played a part with in there, you know. And because uh, I started when I was fourteen, fifteen, you know, 
I was in there when I was 16. Uh, my, you know, I, I was a groupie for No mm. Fixed Address, you know? And then I started hanging around, and then, you know, the, the lead guitarist from Coloured Stones, Salon Burns, the great Salon Burns, you know, legendary lead guitarist, you know? He was, me, him, and, and a guy, and a cousin named Tony Lovett, we all started learning all that. You know, and teaching ourselves, and because we really wanted to be in that band at that time, that was the band. Mm. You know, and, you know, it was so everything about it was so much. You know, so from there, you know, I knew everyone, and then so, and then I, you know, and then I end up meeting, you know, down here in, in uh, Nicholson Street, where I do the old Goanna man used to live. You know, when he was back in his younger days, and um, Shane Howard, and then you know, and then I went through a whole lot of bands, got into my bands, and then. From there, you know, the, Shane sort of walked up to me and asked, did you want to be a, you know, we haven't got an Aboriginal music director in this production. It needs a, you know, because it's not Black Arm if we don't have. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of put my hand up because I knew everybody's music. Yeah. I grew up with it, you know. That was, you know, other people got BB Kings and, the, you know, and, you know, you know, the Black Americans, you know, for their, that mine were... Aboriginal Australia musos, you know, folk singers, you know. And what's what's your, um, I guess, perspective on, on how that's evolved over the years? Because there's set to be a performance at um, this year's Dark Mofo, which is kind of the the new generation of, of those involved in Black Arm Band kind of playing playing songs that's been, that have been there for the whole period since it was, um, you know, since it came to be. How have you seen it evolve? Um, well, I pretty much haven't because I've, you know, taken a step back. Mm. And But I've been hearing stories and, you know, I meet up with the other founders. So now and then we ask how's it going and where's it going and what it's it doing. But, you know, when we did the last show at Hamer Hall, the second last show, you know, and um, I remember standing there was the great, you know, there's a lot of great legends that are gone now, you know, Aboriginal, you know, and, um, you know, and we were talking about that this shouldn't end here. This, you know, Mirandak shouldn't end at Hamer Hall. Mm. You know, we've um, we started a fire. And old only Jackie Geyer, who, who was a great, you know, a great elder, Irish elder that helped fund and do fundings and, and help grow Aboriginal artists and Torres Strait Islander artists. She said, you lighted a fire. I remember Shane telling me this. You lit a fire, you, you know, you, you started a fire, but it went into a bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think that was the case there, that it needed to keep going. Yeah. But the thing was, you know, when we started, it was a, a non-commercial thing, but living in a commercial world, you know what I mean? And then um, from there, it was supposed to help by, you know, the elder artist and the successful artist help showcase the other artist and a younger artist to get to the stepping stone or the platform where they are, you know, and that's what you know, black band, black arm band is about. And we've know? seen people like like Urimal and Emma Donovan yeah. being really, you know, active and yeah. and mm. you can catch them, you know, I reckon any yeah. day of the week around yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. They're um, yeah. you know, they're and they were the in. stepping stones. I mean, because previously we did our own thing and we were doing our own thing, but it was that showcase that helped catapult. You know, artist into the, you know, and that's the ultimate with what Black Arm should be doing. And that's what, at that, you know, the last concert, and we decided, you know, that this should keep on going on. And great to have people like, you know, Stephen Richardson and, 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 and the other, you know, um, Art Hub 
things to take it that journey with us and take it further and 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 see the importance of it you know mm. and it's to, and great to see it's still going yeah you know? it is i mean I'll, i'm hoping to catch them at, at dark mofo um later this week and yeah it's really exciting yeah. we, we talked a lot about like greats um this morning dave and and over the weekend we lost a, a great and that's muhammad ali and i yeah. i've noticed on on um line and um, on my social media feed that people are reminding us about his visit to fitzroy when he yeah. was in melbourne and i wonder if you remember that happening yeah i remember i remember word of it you know i remember seeing a photo of it but i remember the talk that was so uplifting important spiritually you know driving you know aboriginal people that you know this this great humanitarian you know and and for us black humanitarian would come who's so famous and would come to fitzroy and and then come and see all of us and come and be a part of the you know and, it, you know, I mean, Stevie Wonder was another one, you know, but to him, you know, the great, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, mm. the legendary, you know, there's only one great, you know, mm. you know. Absolutely. Against the odds he had to fight, you know, you know, and you see people doing it every day and, well, you know, they're catalysts to show, you know, how important them people should be, yeah. And um and so your your EP has uh, just been released. Yeah. I, I close my eyes. Yeah. Um, and you're set to perform a whole string of shows at um, sort of regional venues um, all around town. Is that that's happening this coming July? You yeah, yeah, yeah. July, um, July, August, and September. Right. So it's the start. It's the start of it, you know. And it was great because you know we wanted to. I really wanted to take it to the regional areas because you know with Black Arm we did a lot of cities, and you tend to you know you know with the fundings or it's just you know want to take it to city. But it was important that some places of and some moments of Black Arm we didn't do the regional, which were important to do as well, you know. But uh, the thing about Black Arm is now we're doing them. You know, artists from Black Arm Band are doing, you know, going out. I mean, Kudja just did the last one, mm. you know, and so many other artists, you know, but we're doing it, going to the regional areas and, and, and still, you know, the things that we learn of Black Arm, we're taking and doing ourselves now, you know. And, and, and you're also still mentoring um, and um, you're involved with uh, the Ruby Hunter Foundation, yeah. which people might not realise is there. You can find out more information again and yeah. and um, head to their Facebook page. But that yeah. foundation's yeah. up and yeah. up and running. Tell us yeah, a little bit about that. Yeah, the website will be up, launch, they're going to launch it very soon and the website will be up and running soon. Yeah, it's on the 2nd of October in um, in in the Riverland, you know, up in, in Berry, Renmark. So if you're not doing nothing on the second of October, <laughs> come up there. You know, support Only Ruby and 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 the people there. And know? so, what's going to be going going down? Is it kind of a, a showcase showcase? Yeah, with a bunch of yeah. There's going to be a, a, a full on the first of its kind. You know, Ruby Hunter Foundation Festival. Yeah, um, and the headlining is Archie Broach, Coloured Stone, Kudji Edwards, and myself. Yeah. So and and so many 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 more Aboriginal. Terror Strait Islander, South Australian mob, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely one to um to keep an eye out for. Yeah. So October two is that, and um, Dave Arden's performing a whole string of shows uh, at regional venues. Probably the the closest one I think to Melbourne's um your first one at Knox Community Arts Centre yeah. out in out in the east, and that's yeah. on Thursday the seventh of July. You yeah. can get tickets um through the Knox City Council website, um and you can, or you can give them a call. Um and there's a bunch of shows as well. So if you're listening from uh, different parts of the state, then um you can check out uh, Dave Arden's website, and we'll also um. Put 
post, uh, post some links on our Facebook page to let you know where they're at. And how can people get a copy of, of your EP? Have you done a, um, um, a hard go copy? Go on the Facebook. Yep. Go on the Facebook, you know, um, JB Hi-Fi. But go on the Facebook and, you know, between there, them two places, or iTunes or, you know. Mm. Got it covered. Yeah, got it all covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, with Western District, we're doing you know Warrnambool, Haywood, and we're doing Gippsland. So right up to Lakes Entrance. That's right, and out, out to Sale Warrnambool. as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is great. It's my wife's country, and I've been dying to do it there. You know. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, well, best of luck, and um, and thanks uh, for putting out your EP. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's great, yeah. and and thanks for for stopping by Triple R. No worries. Thanks a lot for having me. Eh? Good right. to have you here, David. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.